All right, good to see everybody. Welcome. We uh, have recently begun a new study in a new book. We have begun a study in what many consider to be the greatest book in the Bible, the book of Romans. If you would turn there to chapter 1. And while you're doing that, let me just say, Romans is the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. <laughs> Martin Luther said it should be memorized word for word and constantly read by God's people that they might know and understand their liberty in Christ. Now, as we've already said, Paul the Apostle wrote this book on his third missionary journey as he was staying three months in Corinth in the house of Gaius. And then he gave the letter to Phoebe, a Christian businesswoman who was headed to Rome on business. We see this at the end of the book. And she, she carried the letter to Rome and delivered it to the saints there. I don't think Phoebe had any comprehension of the spiritual treasure that had been entrusted to her, nor the impact it would have on countless lives down through the centuries. Did she have any idea what she was carrying? Um, the word of God is more precious than gold, the psalmist said. Boy, that's an understatement with this book. And that's one of the reasons we um, want to study it. It's an incredible book. And I think a lot of Christians tend to shy away from it because they're afraid of it. They're afraid it's just too deep, theologically too strenuous to dig through. And I've heard teachers that I respect say, it took me years to teach Romans because I just didn't feel I was up to the task. And I didn't feel I had the time to dig out all the things I felt I needed to to make a good presentation of it. Uh, so, you know, but look, we can approach God's word like a theologian, and many theologians have taken years and years to try to plumb the depths of this book, and I don't think really have um, exhausted it. But then we have children in our Sunday school that we teach the word to very simply, and they grasp the basic concepts and can interact with a book like Romans in a way that is really a miracle. So Paul gives us the theme of the book in the very first sentence, the gospel of God. Let's read verse 1. Paul, a bond, uh, the actual term is bond slave. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now, guys, 25 years before this, Saul, as he was named back then, was on his way to Damascus to arrest Jewish believers in Christ and drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. The goal was, no doubt, to have them be um, uh, pronounced guilty of heresy and blasphemy. Blasphemy, how? Because they were calling Jesus Christ God. And for a Jew committed to Judaism as Paul. That was the ultimate blasphemy. And no doubt that was what he was after. He wanted to stamp out this cult called Christianity. He wanted to put to rest once and for all any worship of this, of this carpenter from Nazareth that wound up getting himself crucified, and yet people claimed that he had risen. Paul didn't buy that, or Saul of Tarsus at that time, didn't buy that, and so he felt it was his mission uh, in the name of Judaism to stamp out this cult uh, and bring to justice 
uh, its followers and put to an end this gospel so-called that bore the name of Jesus Christ. But then something happened on the road to Damascus. Turn to Acts 9. Acts 9, starting with verse 1. Paul's on his way. Now, I should read it. We'll just pick it up. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues. These were basically arrest warrants. Um to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that was the initial name for Christianity, the way. Of course, we understand why it was called that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So they like that. Oh, he's the way. Well, we'll be the way. <laughs> uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so... Uh, yeah, we're going to go up there to find, Paul said, takes to some guys, I'm going to go up there, we're going to try to find any people of the way, and uh, whether men or women, uh, that, you know, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul got converted to Christianity that day. And ever since he has called himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ, the very Jesus Christ he had hated 25 years earlier and whose followers he had sought to destroy. Uh, there's a line from a very famous poem, no one can understand the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. And for Saul of Tarsus, it was dramatic and it was lifelong. So verse 1, Paul, bondservant of Jesus Christ, listen, called to be an apostle. Well, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul gives us a little more on what he's talking about. Galatians 1, verse 15. Paul said, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. He's talking about his ministry now. How that God separated him for the, for the gospel, from his mother's womb, and called him through his grace. And we learn from Romans 1 to be an apostle. And guys, can I say this? By the way, this is your testimony as well, whether you realize it or not. You know, I, I'd like to say you're a spiritual snowflake, but that has become tainted nowadays, okay? <laughs> Used to be a real nice way to put it. You're unique, you're beautiful in the eyes of God. He's made you just the way you are, but now they've ruined it. Um, so so I, I'm not going to use it, okay? But nobody could fulfill the ministry that God's called you to quite like you. I'm not saying if you don't, he, he's, oh, what am I going to do now? No, that's obviously not true. He'll bring somebody else in. But you are uniquely qualified for whatever ministry God has called you to. Uh, you were born uh, at a certain period of time, human history. You were born into a certain family. 
you were born into a certain place, America, for most of you here, maybe all of you. You don't realize, and this is what Paul is saying. Paul was born in a Gentile town. He grew up, though, in a Jewish family. Uh, his dad was a Pharisee. When Paul was bar mitzvahed, uh, his dad sent him to Jerusalem. To he's, he's already been learning Greek culture for the last 12, 13 years. Now he's sent to Jerusalem where he is schooled at the feet of one of the seven great teachers, rabbis in Israel's history, Gamaliel. So he learned from the best about Judaism. This qualified him in such a way that he could be uh, a, an apostle to the Jews or the Gentiles. Now, he always wanted to be an apostle to the Jews. And whenever Paul came into a town, the first place he went was to the synagogue because he had a heart for his countrymen, the Jewish people. And maybe there were times God opened the door and some people got saved. Uh, but for the most part, Paul was chased out of these synagogues and so he shook the dust off and just simply focused on the Gentiles, which, in fact, Jesus had called him to. He had called him to the Gentiles, even though he never lost his heart for the Jewish people. And so Paul was uniquely qualified for the ministry God gave him to do. You are uniquely, uniquely qualified for the ministry God has given you to do. I don't even know what that is, you might be thinking. Seek him. He'll reveal it to you. And let me say this to you, there are seasons in our lives. And during each season, maybe God's called you to do something unique for him in that season. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But as time progresses, uh, the ministries may change. But you always are to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> Romans uh, 1, verse 1 again Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. That word separated is important, at least as, as I read it, separated to the gospel of God. We're all separated to something. Most, most people have separated themselves to something. Fame, success, um, you know, something else, uh, money, um, whatever it might be. Be separated to something that matters, that counts for eternity. That's the key. We're all going to serve something or someone. Joshua said this. You know, he told the children of Israel that even before Joshua had died, they'd already gotten into idolatry. They'd already begun to, uh, to worship the gods of the Canaanites. And so Joshua, as an old man, uh, calls the nation together and he challenges them. He said, look, and I'll just give you the synopsis. He said, look, you have to choose what gods you're going to serve, whether it be the God, Lord God Almighty or the gods of this land. As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And that's a conscious decision that you have to make. God won't force you to do anything. We choose the life we want to live. And if we choose a life for God, he will supply all the power, all the resources, all the grace we will need to do, whatever it is he's called us to do. The challenge is make your life count for something. You realize that at the end of February, a new movie's coming out. Uh, and uh, it's a movie about the Jesus movement. And, uh, you know, which 
Chuck Smith was used great a bit. Chuck was my pastor, uh, pastor Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. And um, God used Chuck in a very powerful way to start a, Jews, a Jesus uh, revival. And so the actor playing Chuck is Kelsey Grammer, okay? You, you've, you've ever watched, uh, what, what is it again? Frazier, yes. Uh, you, you know who he is, but he's a Christian. Now, I just saw him interviewed on TV, and he said, I was so burdened, almost to the point of panic, that I, I wanted to do something that mattered. And God opened his door to tell a story about how God moved at a time when a generation was so lost. These kids were turning on and tuning out. Don't trust anybody over 30, uh, that kind of motto. And they were really lost, and the devil was going, plowing through them. They were dying of overdoses and venereal disease and everything else. And yet in the midst of all of this, God, who loved these kids, began to move. And he used the most unlikely person. You see a lot of pastors today trying to relate to the young folks. They're walking around with skinny jeans. You will never catch me in a pair of skinny jeans. That is my promise to you. Physics are not on my side with regard to skinny jeans. But God took a 37-year-old bald guy with a turtleneck sweater to reach the hippies. And Chuck said, you know, I didn't feel I had to be anybody but myself. God was going to use me. He was going to use me, and he certainly did. But I, those words of, of Kelsey's uh, you know, really stuck with me. He said, I just couldn't go on living a life without doing something that matters. Live your life according to something that matters. The gospel of God, if you separate your life to the gospel of God, or as some have called it, the gospel of grace, it will matter now, and it will be a reward, blessing for all eternity. Now, guys, so Paul says that he was separated to the gospel of God. Since the word gospel simply means good news, Paul now defines what this good news from God or of God is all about. He first of all tells us that this good news, listen, is not new news. Okay? It was promised in the Old Testament. So separated to the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised before there was through his prophets in the holy scriptures. The gospel of God is according to the holy scriptures, not according to, you know. The revelation given to Joseph Smith by the angel Moroni, which became Mormonism. Or the gospel, quote-unquote, that started with Charles Taze Russell, that became the gospel of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, i.e. Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a lot of false gospels out there. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1-4. to and, of course, many other places state that. But Paul is telling us that the true gospel, the gospel of the true and living God, 
was foretold in his holy word through his prophets. And unlike the spiritual writings of other religious leaders and teachers that have come down the pike through human history, the pike of human history, I should say, this good news is built on its, on its founder, Jesus Christ, and knowing him personally in your heart through faith. That's what makes Christianity unique. Look, you can be a Buddhist without knowing Buddha. You can be a Muslim without knowing Muhammad. You can be a Confucianist without knowing Confucius, but you cannot be a Christian without knowing Jesus Christ. I don't know if a lot of Christians have thought about it. So a lot of Christians even want to lump us together with all these other, I mean, I'm not saying they're not saved, these Christians, but they kind of want to lift up other religions. I guess that's tolerance. That's equity. I don't know what they're thinking. I just know this. Christianity is unique. Not the least of which because our founder is alive. And when we accept him as our Savior, he comes inside through his Holy Spirit. He is alive. He is alive in our hearts. And that makes Christianity unique from every other religion on the face of the earth. So first of all, Paul tells us that this gospel is about a person. A person. Not about religious rules or a code of ethics or a moral standard that has to be kept to please God and earn a place in heaven. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship with a person. And uh, again, that makes us unique. Secondly, this person, Paul tells us, has a lineage or a pedigree that was prophesied about in the Holy Scriptures, our Old Testament. Paul only had the Old Testament. He was working on writing the new. But when he quotes things, he's quoting the Old Testament, our Old Testament, okay? And um, he says in verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. This good news, this good news of God, the gospel of God, has a lineage attached to it. It's about a Jewish person a Jewish person who was born into a particular family, the family of David. This is the Jesus Paul is referring to, not any other Jesus than the Son of God who became a man born of the seed of David and who was given the titles Anointed One, which in the Hebrew is Mashiach, Messiah, in the Greek Christos or Christ, he was given the title Anointed One and King. And so this gospel of God, guys, let me just say this. Any so-called gospel that isn't built on this Jesus Christ isn't the gospel of God. So the, this gospel of God was foretold in the Old Testament, Paul says, to start with. And let me just say this. Um, in fact, it had to be. In fact, it had to be. You say, what are you talking about? Well, any good news that doesn't go back to the beginning of creation, where mankind first fell and offers those people an opportunity to be redeemed, any so-called good news that leaves out a big chunk of people is not the gospel of God, who desires all men 
and women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, right? I mean, any gospel that doesn't go back to the beginning, when mankind first fell, and therefore includes all of fallen mankind in God's plan of redemption, isn't the true gospel. Listen, a Johnny-come-lately gospel isn't the true gospel, or, in other words, any gospel that didn't start in the Garden of Eden isn't from God. Genesis 3.15 is where our gospel started. The Proto-Evangelium, Latin for the first glimpse of the gospel. That through the seed of the woman, a redeemer would come who would be virgin-born, seed of the woman, and he would crush the serpent's head, and yet the serpent would bite his heel. The serpent would move in the hearts of people to kill him, but he would rise from the dead and ultimately crush the devil's authority, the devil's head, and establish a kingdom that would last forever. You see, guys, and I bring this up because Mormonism started in April of 1830 and claimed to be the only true religion presenting the only true gospel. 1830. That's a lot of years to wait for the true gospel. What happened to everybody before that? Well, they were lost. You mean to tell me that God didn't love those folks? Didn't want to see them saved. He waited 1,830 years to give the world the true gospel? If you just think about some of these groups and what they uh, are presenting, you see what I'm talking about. And the same goes with all religions and all cults. Mormonism is a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. But you have false religions, obviously, who didn't start in the Garden of Eden. There's only one, believe it or not, there's only one false religion that got started in the Garden of Eden. You know what it was? Hinduism. In the Garden of Eden, you had the truth of God, which became the basis for Judeo-Christianity, and you had the lie of the devil. You will not surely die. In the day that you eat the fruit that God forbid Eve, you, your eyes will be opened, you'll be enlightened, and you will ascend to Godhood. That's the lie of Hinduism. So, verse 3, Paul goes on, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, speaking of his humanity, of course. Verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, speaking of his divinity. Paul tells us that Jesus Christ, uh, that that Jesus Christ of the gospel of God is both fully God and fully man. Again, the theologians call that the hypostatic union, the, the, the blending of, of humanity and deity, but he wasn't 50% man and 50% God. He, he was fully man and fully God. It's a miracle, one we can't really get our minds around. We'll understand it someday when we see him as he is and we will be made like him and we will then have, um, I don't know if we'll have all knowledge. I think only God's going to have all knowledge. We'll get a lot smarter. I, good, I'm looking forward to that. Um, but Jesus was born a flesh and blood human being on the earth through Mary. And John starts his first epistle, ver, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, look, we saw him. 
See, because the Gnostics were the, the, the major religious force in the first century Greco-Roman world. And they believed, Gnosticism believes that all, all matter is evil. So Jesus Christ couldn't have come in the flesh because he would have been evil. So he was a spirit. He was a ghost, an apparition. And John said, no way. We saw him. We heard him. We hugged him. We touched him concerning the word of life. He was real. It's interesting that the first heresy in the church was not leveled against Jesus' deity. It was leveled against his humanity, that he wasn't really a person. He had to be a person, a flesh and blood human being, descendant of Adam, Yet Adam was not his father. God the Father was his father. So original sin didn't pass from Adam onto Jesus. He was born sinless because God the Father through the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary's womb with the seed of God without physical contact. So he could be born a flesh and blood human being but not be tainted by sin. Fully God and fully man. Very important that we understand that because, again, there are, are so many that, that, that don't understand. I'm talking about unbelievers now. Don't, they don't understand what Christianity is, is really all about. It's because they haven't taken the time to study what really it's all about. Muslims reject Christianity most of the time because they think it's blasphemous that we believe that God had sex with Mary. We don't believe that. We, we don't believe that. But Jesus Christ had to be a descendant of the human race because he couldn't be our goel, kinsman redeemer, if he was not born a human being. That's another subject. We don't have time to get into it. But all right, just lay the ground, just laying the groundwork. So he was born a flesh and blood human being on earth through Mary, but he proved his divinity, listen, through the resurrection from the dead, Paul tells us. Now commentators question how Jesus' resurrection could prove his divinity when others were raised from the dead, right? Like Lazarus, John 11. And it didn't prove that Lazarus was divine. So, so what is Paul saying here? Uh, again, Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Others were raised from the dead. Why weren't they declared to be God? How does that prove Jesus was God? Well, there's two possible explanations. The first one is that Jesus said that he would raise himself from the dead. He would raise himself from the dead. Only God can do that. Remember, there's two passages that come to mind. Remember John 2, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, what? I will raise it up. Now, his critics thought he's talking about the temple of Herod. And they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days. Sixty years after the fact, as John is writing his gospel, John adds a little commentary. He said, this he spoke of the body of his flesh, not of the earthly brick-and-mortar temple. But then, of course, John 10, verse 18. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. Listen, 
I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to take it up again. Now, just as a little side note, and I brought the notes with me. The New Testament teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all three involved in Jesus' resurrection. And there are verses for that. If you like to know what they are, come on up. I've got them with me. You can take a picture of it if, you're, if, uh, if this is something that you want to study uh, in more detail. So that's number one, uh, that you know, Jesus said he would raise himself from the dead. And he did. That proved his divinity, that he was God. Number two, the Greek in verse 4 simply reads that, and I'm quoting, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The Greek is literally resurrection of dead ones. Some believe that what Paul is saying is that Jesus proved his divinity by raising people from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit that rested upon him, as we talked about Sunday. He was baptized in the Jordan by John. When he came up, he prayed, the Spirit of God descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. That Greek preposition indicates the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is an empowering for service. Jesus Christ did not begin his public ministry until he was first baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he went to the synagogue in Nazareth and he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read these words, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the good news. And you've got to read that passage. It, it didn't end so well. For, uh, it didn't end bad for Jesus, but they tried to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> so, you know, when you're preaching like that and people are responding that way, that's good preaching. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, if you're really preaching in the power of the Spirit, some people are going to get saved, other people are going to want to kill you. <laughs> I like it when people get saved. I don't care much if they try to kill me. But with Jesus, that happened uh, more than a few occasions because uh, he just said it like it was, all right? But uh, I just want you to understand that Jesus did rise from the dead. We know he's God through many infallible proofs, right? And the really good news is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, listen, never to die again. That's what made him unique. Others were raised from the dead, but they died again. Lazarus, and there's, uh, I think, three mentioned in the Old Testament, um, two others in the New Testament besides Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus was unique in that when he rose from the dead, uh, he never he, he you know, had his glorified body never to die again. And, and, and the good news is that because he conquered death, he made it possible for us to conquer death as well, but only through him. And that's what it means to be a Christian. You receive Christ and you are placed by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, into the body of Christ. But we can only be raised from the dead because Jesus was first raised from the dead. He was the first fruits, right? First uh, Corinthians 15, he was the first fruits. Uh, he said in John 10, because I live, you will live also. It's all dependent on him. It's all connected to him. Verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now, we all know what grace means. Grace means 
unmerited favor, undeserved blessing. Please have that tattooed on your brain. Everything God gives to us is a gift of grace. He, he will not be our debtor. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything. And whatever he gives to us, it's a gift of his grace, nothing more. I don't earn anything from God. He doesn't owe me anything. Oh, you served me quite a bit last week, Phil. Uh, I owe you a little bit now, right? <laughs> no. Lord, every breath is a gift. Every beat of my heart is a gift. That's good enough. No, no, but he's always giving us things, isn't he? Taking care of us. He dotes uh, on us. Uh, as any father, a good father would, his kids. Um, but it's all by his grace. And guys, you see, what makes good news of God so good is that God is offering mankind salvation according to his grace. Grace means a gift. God is giving to us eternal life as a gift and not according to our goodness or our human achievements. Turn to Ephesians 2. Of course, you all know this, but it's a good place to bring it out again. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 8. Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a what? It is a gift of God. Not of works. Not of your religious works or, or good deeds. Lest anybody, when they get to heaven, stand around boasting. How nauseating will that be? Nothing more nauseating to be around people who are boasting about themselves all the time, you know? And God certainly doesn't want people in heaven they are going to stand around boasting how they deserve to be there, you know? I mean, so the Lord just removes that element altogether and makes it all about a gift, his gift. Turn back to Romans 3 this time. Romans 3. Let's read verses 24 and then 27 where Paul said, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Because we are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ, not by our works. And guys, the reason the good news is so good to us is because God has taken eternal life again out of the realm of human achievement and good deeds and has made it a gift to anyone who wants it. What do I need to get it? You just need to hold out your spiritual hand, so to speak, and receive it by faith. God is offering it. All you got to do is receive it as you would any gift, right? I mean, somebody could be offering you a gift, and you maybe could really use this gift. But if you don't reach out and receive it and make it your own, it won't benefit you. And so even though the whole world is being offered eternal life, most of the world will not receive it, and so on. But someone has defined grace, using it as an acronym. You ready? Grace. What does it mean? Well, God's riches at Christ's expense. And the only way God could show us mercy, any, the only way God could show us blessing, was if, Sin was paid for. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to pay our debt 
so that the way might be open for God to show us mercy and grace and blessing. Now, some people think that because salvation is free, it's cheap. And it's true. When something is too easily attained, it's appreciated far too little. I think I told you the story about a, um, I think it was a college, and they were doing a little study, human nature study. So, or it might have been a department store chain, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever. You know, there so many have gone out of business, I, I'm afraid to mention one. But uh, they wanted to run a little, uh, uh, do a little study. So what did they do? Well, they put upstairs in the exclusive section of the store where all the top-end clothing was, they put these dresses and different things, and they, the price was astronomical on these garments, right? Just in what they were in the, the, the most expensive section of the store. Then in the bargain basement, all the way down to the basement, they put the exact same merchandise marked down to hardly anything. Everyone was giving it away. Do you know that they couldn't keep the garments in stock upstairs? They were selling out constantly, and they couldn't get rid of the garments in the basement, and it was all the same stuff. Because what comes too cheaply is valued too little. And that's the danger of the gospel and eternal life. Some people think that because they don't have to work for it and sacrifice and fast and all these religious works, if they can't earn it, if it's free, it's not worth anything. Well, it's not free. Don't kid yourself. It cost God a great deal to purchase our salvation. A great deal. And, of course, the verse that comes to mind is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that salvation is cheap. Again, it costs God a great deal to save us and offer us eternal life as a gift of his love. And when a person tries to buy or pay for their salvation through their good works, tries to pay for the love that God is offering freely. Listen, it is the ultimate insult to him. There's a word for it, prostitution. Can you imagine somebody doing something for you out of great love and, 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 and you destroy it by trying to offer money. But just use, that's a dumb example. It doesn't even begin to communicate what we're talking about. But um, let's just say that you really wanted to invite uh, Cindy and I over for dinner. You, you just really wanted to do that. You wanted to invite us over for a really wonderful dinner. You're a good cook. And uh, so you invited us. So we accept the invitation, came over, had a wonderful evening. I mean, you went all out. You you bought the finest meat. You put it obviously took you a long time to put together this meal. And as I'm standing up to leave, I say, pull out my wallet and say, I'm gonna sell you. That's an insult. It can't even begin to compare to the insult that God is insulted with by people who try to pay him for what he is offering to them freely, what he bought and paid for through his great love for us. 
and so on. But guys, talking about the gospel of God, Paul is defining it. This is the central theme of the good news, the good news of God, that salvation doesn't come by, listen, water baptism, confirmation, communion, church membership, or church attendance. It doesn't come by good works or by being a good person or by living a moral life or by giving to the church or to the poor or by volunteering in the local soup kitchen. I'm not putting many of those things down. But these are just some ways people try to earn what God is offering freely, right? Guys, it is a gift of grace you receive by believing in and receiving Jesus as your Savior and turning your life over to him as your master. It is a gift to be received, not a reward to be earned. Now, we have 2,000 years of Christianity, and we say, well, of course. This is not news to us. But we're talking about a first-century pagan world that God has sent Paul into. In the, in the ancient world, uh, paganism, uh, it was all about working your tail off so that at very least the gods wouldn't be angry with you and do something bad to you. The goal for many of them was just to, to placate the gods so that they leave me alone. But there were different gods that you wanted to placate, sacrifice to, and so on, because you wanted their blessings on your fields and different things and so on and so forth. And um, here comes the gospel of Jesus Christ into a world of darkness, a world of paganism which often said people need to die to be sacrificed to the gods to make them happy. And Paul comes with the message, no, no, no. The God of all creation sent his son to die for you, that you might have eternal life. I mean, yeah, we, we understand that truth. But put yourself in their shoes. That was about as revolutionary a message you could ever think of. Now, Paul's going to have a whole lot more to say about grace later, so we'll leave... Save the bulk of our comments until then. But again, verse 5 tells us that Jesus, that through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship. Uh, by saying this, Paul isn't saying that uh, as Jesus' disciples we are exactly like and on the same level with the 12 apostles. He talks about us having received grace and apostleship. But don't think for a second he's talking about that we're now equal with those disciples that were appointed by Jesus as apostles, Judas hanged himself, Matthias took his place, so there were still 12, right? Uh, the Greek word for apostle, apostle is apostolos, which literally means one who has been sent out with a commission. But the word also carries with it the idea of being authorized to act on behalf of of another. The other is often a king or a governor or a dignitary of some kind. Turn to John 20. Being authorized to act on behalf of another. Now in John 20, we've been looking at verses 19 to 23, but let me just draw your attention to verses 20 and 21. This is the evening of Jesus' resurrection. He's appeared to these men in the upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, because they were worried he was a ghost, terrified, actually. And so he wanted them to know that, look, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bone. It's interesting he didn't say flesh and blood, right? He made it a point to say flesh and bone. You say, well, why, why is that an issue? It tells us that our glorified bodies are not going to be a blood-drive system. They're going to be a spirit-drive system. They're going to have um, tangibility. They're going to be tangible. They're, they're going, they're, we're not going to be ghosts or spirits, right? Although we will have the ability to, I don't know, in some way um, do something to cause our molecules to be able to pass through walls and doors like Jesus did. So that'll be a kick to find out how that all works. Um, but if you notice what Jesus said to them, okay, uh, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, what? As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, he was going to ascend very shortly back to the Father in heaven. And what these disciples were now going to be, as well as all of us, because it wasn't just those in the upper room he was calling uh, to be, uh, you know, um, his representatives. But very soon, they were going to be, we, are go we were going to be, here we are, representing our king on foreign soil. He's in heaven. That's where, think of ambassador. Ambassador and apostle is not the same exact thing, but for our intents and purposes, it's pretty close, all right? And think about that. An ambassador is somebody who represents a dignitary, a king, a governor, on foreign soil. We are representing our king here on the earth, on foreign soil. This is not our home. Someday we will be with the Lord in heaven. But we call it, guys, the Great Commission. I'll just read this to you. You don't have to turn to it. Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus, this is now right before Jesus ascended back to the Father. He uh, came and uh, appeared to his disciples and saying to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So he was commissioning them. He was sending them out as apostles, uh, ambassadors, if you will. Guys, the Great Commission is all about Jesus, our King, sending us out into, a, into the world with the good news of redemption that God has provided a way whereby you can be forgiven for all your sins. It has to be paid for. You can't do it yourself. But God so loved you, he sent his son to die in your place. That's good news. And what is attached to it? The good news of the coming kingdom. And I can't wait. As I see this world imploding more and more and disintegrating into chaos, confusion, corruption, and so on, I cannot wait for our king to come back and to establish a kingdom of true righteousness and so on. That's good news. That's what we have. That's what we has been entrusted. You talk about Phoebe having been entrusted to the book of Romans. That was huge. How about Jesus Christ entrusting his church with a message that will revolutionize the world if embraced? 
Wow. The ultimate part of that message, he's coming back. He's coming back first to judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom that will never end. And we are going to be a part of that kingdom. Our sins have been washed away. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Romans 8, 1. Our sins have been taken care of. We have moved from the wrath of God being upon us to the blessings of God because we're now we're in the family of God being upon us, right? Um, but guys, since all we'll finish with this. Since all believers in Jesus have been commissioned by the Lord, all believers are apostles of the Lord. And again, not like the twelve. The original 12 apostles were unique. And even after Judas hanged himself and was replaced, the 12 apostles had a unique ministry. First of all, you couldn't even be one of the, I would say, the 12, unless you had seen the risen Christ, and unless you were empowered by the Holy Spirit with miraculous power. Remember, Paul was always being challenged about his apostleship. Well, Paul wasn't with the 12. He wasn't one of the 12. What gives him the right to, to, to claim he's an apostle? And how did he defend himself? Have I not seen the risen Christ? Are not the works of an apostle being wrought through me? That was, you know, Paul was saying, look, I am, I'm an apostle born out of due time. That's true. I wasn't with the 12. But it's not that Jesus Christ hasn't commissioned me. He appeared to Paul and commission Paul as an apostle. Um, because this is always, and, and of course, through the apostles came New Testament doctrine, for the most part. I mean, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Luke was a Gentile, all right, uh, and not an apostle. Mark wasn't an apostle, and he wrote the Gospel of Mark. But for the most part, God gave to the apostles the twelve divine revelation, direct revelation from God that was written down and became our New Testament. Now, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the church of Jesus Christ was built on, an, on a foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. What does that mean? I thought the church was built on Jesus Christ. It's true, but it's a diff, Paul's saying it a little different way. Who is Jesus? The Word became flesh, right? He's the word. So when Paul says that the church was built on a foundation of apostles and prophets, it's because God gave to them the word, the New Testament doctrine we, uh, the church is built on. But it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's just a different way of saying it, right? And so we are not like, and you have people running around in the church who claim to be apostles. Some of them even think they are empowered by God to give us new revelation. That's very dangerous. We don't, we are not getting any more rev doctrine. That's all done. It was completed with the book of Revelation. Does that mean God doesn't speak to us personally anymore? Of course he does, all the time. That's different from doctrine, though, okay? Some of these characters believe that they are, have been given new doctrine from God. The problem is it contradicts the old doctrine in our word. That's a different subject. But, but this is always the case, and we'll close, all right? That, you know, there, there are no spectators in the body of Christ. 
All who have been converted have been commissioned. All right. All who have been saved have been sent. Every member is a minister. Every saint is a servant. Again, turn back to Ephesians. We'll end with this. We've already read verses 8 and 9. I want to finish with 8 and 9 and then 10. Ephesians 2. Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not, not of works, lest any should boast. Okay, those verses should be, I don't know, tattooed, written on your body, somewhere. I'm not going to go there. I'm sorry I went there at all. Um, stamp it on your forehead. Do something with it so you never forget Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But I like verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is no such thing as a Christian who has been saved to sit. We have been saved to serve. We have been converted to be commissioned. It's all there is to it. And I want to leave it there. Because this idea that we have been created for good works throws some people. And Paul is going to address something in verse 5 that we need to spend a little time on next week. Maybe the whole hour on. And let me just say this. You think, well, you're going kind of slow. I mean, it'll be, you know, uh, the week after Jesus returns before you're done. And won't that be good for you? Because he'll take over. <laughs> and you don't have to listen to me anymore. Um, as we mentioned last time, the introduction of Romans is longer by far than any of Paul's other letters. He's so excited about the truths he wants to present to this church and to the body of Christ in general that he jams so much in the first 17 verses it's incredible. And that's why we're taking a little time with it. Uh, because Paul did. And if he felt the need to jam-pack the introduction with all kinds of doctrines and things, we're going to unravel them as we go and, and, and um, look at them uh, part by part. And then we'll, we'll get going into our first main section. Okay? So... God willing, come on back next week and we will continue on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible book. We just pray that your spirit would really be our teacher to present these truths in a, in a powerful, life-changing way. So Lord, uh, continue to bless these studies in this awesome book. We, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.